we've been taught, we've been programmed by our schools and our universities to think in categories. And uh, that's very much different than thinking dialectically, uh, where uh, many, many things are in play at the same time. And uh, This is the co-founder of the Black Panther Party, Huey P. Newton. He's speaking during an interview in 1973 with conservative author and political commentator William F. Buckley. The lifting of the consciousness of the people uh, we're living in a very technical uh, world now, uh, uh, thanks to the West. They took away other people's goods and uh, they dominated them as their very own. And that wealth snowballed and uh, certain people were able to inherit without even working at all, such as my friend here, and uh, then protect that interest of the right of inheritance, you see? For the record, while you were relaxing in jail, I was working. Uh, maybe you call working right in your mouth. Uh, I don't, uh, uh, on these TV programs. In our first episode, we talked about the Black Panther Party. We talked about how they started out as a group of young revolutionaries here in Oakland. On this episode, we want to talk about what they actually did and what the revolution looked like. Now, probably already know some of the Panther story. That they was hella militant, that they carried guns and went toe-to-toe with police forces across the country, and that's facts. But part of the government's propaganda campaign was to falsely paint the Panthers as an anti-white terrorist hate group, which erased the Panthers' communal and egalitarian ideologies. And the government never highlighted the other side of their work. And that other side was all this other stuff that even if you weren't a quote-unquote radical, you could get down with like how Panthers would direct traffic so people could cross a busy street, or giving out meals to kids who didn't have enough food at home, and running free health clinics. The Panthers were providing basic essential services where the government wasn't. In the community here in Oakland, and in other cities, they were into it. Which was a lot scarier to some people than speeches and guns. This is Tales of the Town. I'm Abbas Muntakeem. And I'm Delancey Parham where two organizers in Oakland guided by radical traditions and our fight for Black liberation. Today on the show, we tell the inside story of two Black Panther achievements, the battle for a local stoplight, which is now a landmark, and the party's free breakfast program. Plus, we get into why those achievements made the Panthers a target by the government. And later, we look back on starting our own breakfast program and all the work and struggle that went into it. So this... It's Tales of the Town, a podcast about Black Oakland. When did you first hear about the Black Panthers? Well, when they started, oh, when they started to give free lunches to the kids. And you, you see that little sign up out there on that street corner? Yeah, on, on Market and 55th? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's my great-granny Charlene, who you heard from in the first episode. Today, she's in her 90s. But back in the 60s, when the Panthers started, she was raising five kids. My grandma, my aunts, and my uncle. Like she said, one of the first times she heard about the Panthers was when they did something right down the street from her. Just a short walk from Charlene's house is 55th and Market. It's a real busy intersection. On one corner, there's a big metal pole holding up a stoplight. And under the stoplight, there's this yellow sign. I walk by that sign so many times, but I never stopped to read it. 
So a few weeks ago, I walked over there and got a closer look. All right, so right now, I'm walking down Market. I'm at the intersection of 55th and Market. The sign is right here in front of me. On August 1st, 1967, damn. Um, this stoplight was installed as a resort of a community initiative spearheaded by the Black Panther Party. So that was why when I brought up the Panthers, my great-granny remembered this stoplight. But it seemed like such a small thing. One stoplight on one street corner. Why was it such a big deal? For the answer, we talked to Billy X. Jennings. He was an early member of the Panthers, and today, he's the party's official archivist. People would get off the freeway and shoot down Market because Market didn't have that many lights or speed bumps or anything like that. And that was a problem since Market ran through a residential neighborhood. And on a number of occasions, some of the local people, senior citizens as well as young people, have been hit by people in cars. Eventually, a group of neighbors decided to do something. First, they went to their elected representatives. The churches and the people in the community went to city hall meeting, city council meeting, they asked them to put up a light. City council meeting said, we ain't got no money. We, we can't afford that right now. So after the meeting, the people in the community talked to you and Bobby and Bobby said, we can, we, we'll deal with that. Huey and Bobby, of course, were Huey Newton and Bobby Seale, the co-founders of the Black Panther Party. It was 1967. Huey and Bobby had founded the party a year earlier. They were radical. They were anti-racist, anti-capitalist, and anti-imperialist. Their goal, complete black liberation by any means necessary. They want a revolution. Black people organize. And black leaders, you got them up here. I'm only trying to contribute to the leadership. I was forced out here and it's necessary for me to do it and I'm gonna do my job. I'm saying that black leaders will get up and let the political power structure know where it's at and the changes we want, and that if that doesn't happen, then you will cause the political consequence in an organized fashion. The man doesn't have us outnumbered, he has us out-organized. That's Bobby Seale, the co-founder of the Black Panther Party. And the first step towards revolution was going to be small victories. you got to start somewhere. So the Panthers focused on tangible things in the community that they could fix. This organizing didn't always seem revolutionary, but it made people's lives better. And that made more people support the Panthers. And if you're going to start a revolution, you need support. So, to get back to the story, like Billy X was saying, the city council had denied the people's request to do something about how dangerous that stretch of market was. And so, the very next day, party members, uh, about six or seven, got up around about 7 o'clock in the morning and start, stood out in right in the middle of the, of the street and directed traffic for young people who were going to school and for senior citizens. Now, at that time of history of the park, we were armed. Shotguns and people had rights. So somebody standing out in the middle of the street with guns and stuff, and they tell you to stop, you most likely going to stop. <laughs> you know? This happened for maybe three or four days before this, the city council got wind of it. And then the next city council meeting, they all of a sudden found mysterious money put this traffic light there. To organize and fight against a racist colonial government, you have to be an optimist. You have to think that despite all odds, you and your people can come together and make change. 
And that's what the Panthers did with their work for this stoplight. And this effort built trust between the Panthers and the community. The stoplight added to the Panthers' credibility. People in the community, including people who weren't revolutionaries, started to respect the work of the Panthers. On top of that, it was proof that the Panthers' politics, radical, revolutionary, confrontational, could be used to create real change on the ground. It proved what they were saying in their speeches was true, that you couldn't just ask nicely for justice. You had to demand it and fight for it, using any means necessary. It was true in the fight for black liberation all across the world, and it was true in one fight for one stoplight on one street corner in Oakland. After the stoplight went up, the Panthers moved on to another challenge, one that a lot of revolutionaries face. And the question is, how do you expose people to new ideas and inspire them to join your cause? For the Panthers, the answer was simple. Education. The party's central focus and platform was always political education. That's Donna Murch. She's a historian who's written about the Panthers' roots. Even in their police patrols, in which they used to read from California law books about what rights people had, there was always an element of political education. Like Donna said, the Panthers used to walk around with their rifles, following pigs and watching them do their quote-unquote job. And while they did that, they read from these big books of California laws, laws about the right to open carry a weapon, the right to observe pigs from a reasonable distance. Their style was confrontational, but it was also educational. The idea was, how could you have revolution if you weren't educated? So much of the stuff the Panthers did, it came back to that idea, that link between education and revolution. We talked about this with Billy X. He's the party's archivist we heard from earlier. Before you can call yourself a Panther, you have to go through a six to eight week training period, right? And within that period, you're, first off, you're given a book list of maybe 35 books, you know, you're required to read. Uh, you had to read two hours a day. You had to attend political education classes. In the party, we should say education is the raw material for new ideas. So the more information people have, the more ideas they can come up and deal with the situation at hand. At the same time, the Panthers also believed that the public education system didn't serve black people well at all. History lessons was whitewashed, and there were those racist disciplinary codes that Donna Murch mentioned in our last episode. Those were policies that pushed a lot of black students into juvenile prisons. And so, faced with that reality, the party decided to set up its own schools. They called them liberation schools. Children from around Oakland attended these classes after school and during their summer vacations. Panthers would teach black history and educate the students about people like Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman. But there was a problem. Here's historian Donna Murch again. One of the things that they discovered in doing liberation schools is that a lot of the children hadn't had breakfast, that they were food insecure, and that it was impossible to teach children who were hungry. Or as Billy X puts it, And so Johnny can't learn two apples and two apples because Johnny's interested in eating apples, right? To educate the people, the Panthers decided they first got to give little Johnny some food. So what do you do when you want to start a free breakfast program and you need food, a lot of food? Billy X says the Panthers started looking for donors. Uh, the little grocery store on the corner, the little Chinese store down, down the block. Now, they would say, hey, we don't have a lot. 
but we might give you a gallon of milk, a loaf of bread, and maybe a dozen of eggs, which is not a lot, but it's, they're giving back to the community for one. Two, if you multiply that by 12 or 13 other mom and pop stores, you got yourself a breakfast program. And with that, the Black Panther Party's breakfast program officially began. Billy X was there at the very first program, and he says that they started small. The first two days, maybe had 14 to 18 students come by, you know. But as word of mouth spread with the students and through the community, you could suspect anywhere from 28 kids to maybe 50 kids a day coming by for various things. And this was just in one location. Pretty soon, there were more breakfast programs popping up. Well, in total, in Oakland itself, I would say we would have up to five to six breakfast programs in Oakland and maybe one or two others in Berkeley. So from Oakland to Berkeley, plus there were a few locations in San Francisco, the Panthers were feeding hundreds of kids all across the Bay. And then the breakfast program, it went national. Bobby Seale put the word out that every chapter of the branch of the Black Panther Party had started a breakfast program immediately. And some chapters started three, four, and five. Chapters in Kansas City, Chicago, and Seattle. Billy says in Milwaukee, the Panthers partnered with local school PTAs and reached even more kids. The breakfast program was spreading. By one estimate, the Panthers were eventually feeding thousands of children every day. It was a huge success for the party. It was great for the party's reputation. But more importantly, the breakfast program was just doing a lot of good. It was the only thing keeping thousands of children from going hungry. But despite all of that, despite all the good the program was doing, the Panthers still had enemies. There were people who desperately wanted the Panthers to fail. And the Panthers' biggest enemies were inside the United States government. In one department in particular, the FBI. And there was one person in the FBI who wanted to destroy the Panthers most. Its director, J. Edgar Hoover. I am pleased to report that today, all law enforcement presents a united front against so-called fifth-column activities in every state, county, and municipality throughout our land. In this period of national emergency, the strength of law enforcement is as important as the strength of our Army and Navy. Hoover and the rest of the FBI have been trying to sabotage black activists for years. Most of this sabotage was part of a program called COINTELPRO. The program involves stuff like surveillance, wiretaps, assassinations, wrongful imprisonment, torture, and other forms of psychological warfare. The FBI targeted Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, and so many others. But by the late 60s, Dr. King had been assassinated, Malcolm X had been assassinated, and the FBI decided to change its focus. From then on, it considered the Panthers the biggest threat to America. And so the FBI took COINTELPRO 
and refocused it on the party. The FBI used a bunch of different tactics. They had informants infiltrate the party. They sent letters to gang leaders in cities with Panther chapters, saying that the Panthers was going to attack their gang, something that was not true. We talked with Billy X about this repeated intimidation that the Panthers faced. From the very get-go, we had uh, unmarked police cars sitting around, uh, white guys with aviator shades on and stuff like that, you know, wiretaps on your phone, people following you, you know, or you go to a meeting, see somebody out there writing down your license plates and stuff like that. Uh, all those kind of things they intimidate you, coming to your job, come talking to your landlord, or the government will start messing with your paperwork. Next thing you know, you're eligible for the draft where you wasn't before. <laughs> they say, you know, you're going to have to make a decision, you know. So there was all kind of pitfalls they put before you. And the FBI's campaign to destroy the Black Panther Party even included targeting the party's most popular program, the breakfast program. So I asked Billy X, why was the breakfast program such a threat to the state? The threat of the breakfast program is, one, you're waking up the people. You're showing them you, you have power. You're, show, you're showing young people that you care. And so they didn't want young people coming up, falling in the path of the Black Panther Party or any revolutionary who's willing to stand up and fight and do whatever's necessary to preserve itself or its community. And they didn't want those examples installed in those little kids. So that was the big thing. And, and, and if that was happening in every Black community in America, they know they would have problems later on. That's why they tried to squash the program. By this point, it was the 70s. The Panthers weren't just a local organization anymore. The party had gone national. But it might have gotten too big, too fast. The expansion made it easier for U.S. intelligence agents to infiltrate. And this FBI sabotage decimated the Panthers, sending the party into a steep decline. As the party began to fizzle out in the late 1970s, breakfast programs began to disappear. But that's not the end of the story. Even though the Panthers program didn't survive, they had proven something important. The Panthers had shown that the government wasn't doing enough for its people. It was failing to feed thousands, probably hundreds of thousands, of hungry children. The government wasn't filling that need, but the Panthers were. That's part of why the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover were so terrified of the breakfast program. And it's part of why, in the 70s, Congress voted to expand its breakfast program to all public school students. That program still exists today, and almost 15 million kids get their breakfast through it on a typical school day. So if you or your kid got a free breakfast at school, you can thank the Panthers for that. The Panthers were a lot of things. They were revolutionaries, they were cultural icons, but they were also organizers. They were doing the work. Their long-term goal was to overthrow the government, but they understood in the process of this, revolutionaries had to provide for and organize the people. Again, here's Donna Murch. When people think of the iconography of the party, armed self-defense, and the rifles, we think of it always as fighting the state. 
But the party had an identity where they fought the state and then they insisted on concessions from it, like the establishment of a stoplight, like fighting for funding for the Panther School, like using the breakfast programs, not just to demonstrate that they could provide support and food, but to shame the state and to say, if a group of young people, most of whom in their late teens and early 20s, can feed other members of the Black community, why can't the state do it? After the break, we dive into the story of Delincey and I starting our own breakfast program. And we find out the hard way that making eggs for 300 people is anything but simple. In case you missed episode one, here's a reminder. In addition to the podcast, we've teamed up with artists from all over the Bay Area to produce 11 original songs for the Tales of the Town album. All proceeds from the music go towards supporting people's programs. Here's a sneak peek at Risen by Elu J and Jane Hancock, available everywhere this Friday. So before the break, we talked about the Black Panther Party's breakfast program and how serving breakfast to children was one of the first steps towards revolution. And it was the party's breakfast program that inspired us to start our own. We're going to tell you the story of that in a minute. But first, we want to go deeper on the lessons we can take from the Panthers. Because if you're someone who cares about justice, those lessons are still important today. Which brings us to a segment on the show we call Let Me Put You On Something. Put me on some. Put me on some. Let me put you on something is where we take a deeper look at a specific point of the story. Today, let us put you on this. Although writings, speeches, and reading play a pivotal role in organizing, we can't just stop there. We need to have actions that support the theories that we're speaking on and learning about. Because that is where the real work is done. Too often, you get folks speaking on the struggle and conditions of the masses of the people without taking the necessary actions to implement change. This is something that we went through ourselves. In 2016, when we started recording our other podcast, Hello Black, we had to look within and ask ourselves, when are we going to do something else besides just spreading awareness on the plight and struggle of our people? We had to push ourselves to make a difference in our own city before we could expect others to do something here or anywhere else. And yeah, we had done some good things as student organizers, and there was hella value in the education that we was giving people via the podcast, but that needed to be in conjunction with some real material work. And although it had been nearly 50 years since the Panthers launched their first free breakfast program, there were still people in Oakland who needed this type of resource. 
We saw these people every day when we walked out the studio after recording the podcast. So we had to hold ourselves accountable to doing more. And it was the worries and actions of Huey P. Newton that pushed us to get out into the community. In his books, Revolutionary Suicide and To Die for the People, Huey mentioned the importance of him and Bobby Seale getting off campus and doing work that impacted the people in the ghetto. That's the shift of aligning theory with practice that we wanted for ourselves. The program was not only a vessel for us to bring to life all the things we had learned from the books, speeches, and in school, but they also enlightened us and everyone around us to the power of the people. It showed us what we can do with our collective efforts and shared knowledge. Now let's get back to the story. When we thought about what exactly we should do, we thought about the Panthers and about their breakfast program. We thought, what if we tried to do what the Panthers did back in the 60s, serving meals for radical reasons? What if we did that today? Hey, do you need a meal and a hygiene pack? That's Ty. He's one of our central committee members for people's programs. So we have um, a cart full of our meals. So they got a meal, a hygiene pack, and some snacks in them. And we package them all up so people can take them on the move, um, so they can store them for later or anything like that. And then we walk around the entire camp to make sure somebody gets theirs. Hey, do you want a meal? I'm all right. But, um, yeah, people are on the move. People are in motion, so you got to take it to them. People's Programs is a new African and black organization that we founded, which serves to meet the material needs of the people in Oakland. People's Breakfast Oakland, or PBO for short, is one of our programs that we run. What it looks like week to week is me, a boss, members of the organization and volunteers. We go out to houseless camps around Oakland. We serve meals. We hand out hygiene packs with stuff like soap, a toothbrush, vitamins. And during COVID, we've put masks in there. Anyway, we've been doing PBO for a while now, and we've pretty much got it down. But in the beginning, there was a lot of stuff we needed to figure out. We got to have a meeting, you know, get the logistics together. I know y'all remember how it was. That's the homie AB. They also organized with us at People's Programs. And AB and I, we organized together at Berkeley, and they helped us out with logistics. We had to think about where we was going to pull up, how we going to pull up, like... Who was going to pull up on? What was going to feed them? How that process was going to happen? And I was just, like, you know, involved in all of those logistic conversations. So we had all these questions that we didn't know the answers to. But what we did have was a model. We had the Panthers. But even with that, we still made some rookie mistakes. So when we interviewed AB about the early days of PBO, it ended up sounding like how our organizing sounds. Brainstorming, building off each other's ideas, and thinking about what we can do better. And it can sound a little messy, but that's part of the work. Anyway, here's the three of us taking a stroll down memory lane. Black Panthers, they did actual breakfast. like So we was trying to do actual eggs, but you know. We was cooking eggs for 250 people. And we realized like, dog, you need a fucking industrial kitchen yeah. for that. <laughs> you trying to cook sausages for 300 people. You know what I'm saying? And so you got, we got all this all the burners going, the oven on, like, it'd be hella hot. You'd be sweating, the whole house hot. It was like an organizing trap house. It was wild. <laughs> <laughs> it was wild. I remember it being hecka funny, though. Like, us really low-key, like, struggling with food, like, figuring out what to cook. Like, I remember pulling up one time, and we had, like, bread, eggs, sausage, and you know the people gonna eat. The people was juiced. Like they was like, "Oh, what y'all got, young bloods?" Like you know they was on us. Like it was like 
went out. Like, we didn't have no more food left. But I remember thinking, like, maybe we should do soup or something, like, easy to package. After we figured out how hard it is to cook eggs for hundreds of people, we decided to make soup, something we thought would be easier. Yeah, we for sure thought. We asked AB about that one particular trip to the grocery store that went hella wrong. And that story, it brought up hella memories about the early days of PBO. All right, I'm going just, to just tell the story since obviously y'all not going to let me live it down, clearly. I'm going to just tell it for the whole world to hear. Because <laughs> when we talked about it, y'all said y'all let me live, but y'all bring it. <laughs> y'all not going to let me live. Okay, so this will happen. So, boom. The Lindsay mom... You know, she was making soup. You know, we recently transitioned to soup because clearly we can't make eggs and turkey sausage. Like, it wasn't going down. So we started to make soup. I didn't really know the recipe like that. Like, I knew, I mean, you know, I know kind of how to make soup. I'm just cut to the chase. She sent me to the store to buy ingredients. I've never been into that store before. I'm not going to lie. I don't want to offend nobody, but it's a really, like, white store. So it's just like, I was lost. I was like, oh, my God, like, overwhelmed. You know what I'm saying? And I was looking for the garlic salt for hella long. And y'all sent me to the store, like, hours ago. So I'm like, I need to hurry up and get back. Like, So I'm looking through the aisles. I can't find it. I finally asked somebody. They sent me to the bulk section. Cool. Bulk section. Never been in. Never done that before. Whatever. Grab a bag. Look at the list again. And she's like, garlic salt. She don't say quantity. You know what I'm saying? She just say garlic salt. You know what I'm saying? So I'm just thinking, like, we make a lot of soup, so we need a lot of garlic salt. You know? So <laughs> I bought... $50 worth of garlic salt. <laughs> I'm sure my auntie is still using that shit to this day. It was so much garlic salt. It was like a brick of garlic salt, like a kilo of garlic salt. That shit was so funny. Like, bro, you, you really came in with a turkey bag full of salt. <laughs> but I think what's so funny about that grocery store story is that like, me and Delincey had the same thing happen to us, essentially. We for sure, that first program we ever did, we for sure were up till, like, midnight preparing. It was so wild, like, the shit that people don't be remembering is, like, my mom would be like, all right, you, the soup can't sit out all night, but you have to let it cool down before you put it in the refrigerator. <laughs> so, like, you can't put it in too early, you can't put it in too late. And then you got to wake up and put it on a burner for enough time for that shit to, that whole big-ass gumbo pot of soup to heat up. So, they'd be like, all right, I got to stay up. And put the put the soup in the refrigerator at one o'clock in the morning. Then I gotta wake up at six to put the shit on the burners. <laughs> it would be like, dog, if we would have just like organized it a little different. So it'd be like you would do that. You'll spend the whole day organizing, you know, doing the work. And then on Sunday, you'll go out and immerse yourself into the trenches and just be emotionally exhausted. And I I remember like being like, that's probably why we can only do once a month for so long, because it was just exhausting in so many ways. You know, in addition to being exhausting, it was also low-key traumatic. Day in, day out, being up close to so much suffering. Obviously, these folks in these camps have it worse than people like me, D, and our volunteers. But one thing a lot of people don't understand about organizing or doing work in the community is that it takes a toll. A mental, emotional, and a physical toll. That was true for the Panthers, and it's true for anyone else doing work in the field. And it was true for me and Delancey. Those first few months, that was tough. But we kept working. We kept doing the work the way the Panthers did it. 
by looking to the community, talking to the people, and asking them, how can we help? We talked about this with AB. They recalled how in those first few months, they would just walk into these camps and start talking to people. Like, I just asked, like, what do y'all need? Like, we are like a new upcoming group. Like, we just want to like help y'all. Like, we don't want to just like give y'all stuff. You feel me? We want to help y'all. Like, tell us what to do. You know, like, this is y'all community. Like, I just want to be clear. Like, that is the only thing you should be doing in the community is asking the community what they want, what they need. You feel me? So hour long conversations, two hour long conversations with Bishop built this program. And those long conversations that we was having with the community, that made the program better. We figured out other stuff to add to those hygiene packs that we was handing out, and we also switched up the food. Instead of eggs and soup, we did stuff like hot dogs. Yeah, them hot dogs were a hit. These hot dogs, they was hella popular. At the same time, we wanted to offer healthier options. But finding and serving healthy food erased all these other challenges that we didn't think about in the beginning. A.B. brought this up. And it sent us on another stroll down memory lane. It's hard to have healthy food in large quantities, um, especially in this type of organization where we like working off donations. But we be getting all types of food now. It almost got too healthy at a point. <laughs> Remember when like some of the niggas would be like, bro, I don't want this weak ass salad, bro. Where them hot dogs at? <laughs> like, you know, so I feel like there was that like there was almost that line where we had to like tell where it was like, all right, yeah, we trying to build put more healthier food. But like. Some niggas don't want just a salad, bro, or some tofu salad or some, you feel me? Like It go back to what AB was saying. Like, you ask them what they want, you feel me? And, like, at least be able to, like, if we going to provide a salad, nigga, give a nigga a hot dog to wash it down with. You know what I'm saying? Like, they got to still have some type of agency. Like, we don't want to move like the government doing and just planting hella, you know, unhealthy foods into these communities. But, like, you know, and that's what a lot of people go wrong when they try to engage houseless communities and giving them food. Like, oh, well, they should be happy to begin anything or we know what's best for them. It's like, nigga, I would rather starve than eat a quinoa salad right now. Right. Period. Like, period. I don't know what that is. My taste buds don't 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 recognize that. I'm not eating that. Nigga, I don't even eat quinoa. That's what I'm saying. At a yeah. certain point, I don't even eat as healthy as I was trying to make them eat. So I had to, like, again, take some steps back. Like, I want them to eat healthy. But shit, if they was if they wasn't shelterless, I wouldn't be picking their diet at all. So what y'all want to eat? You feel me? I got y'all back. But then also y'all should try to eat these oranges because y'all need fucking vitamin C. You know, just trying to balance, you know. Eventually, things got easier. We learned from our mistakes and we made adjustments. Plus, we recruited more volunteers and we began spreading out the responsibility. AB remembers the day that it finally felt like we got this. I remember just looking around. I think that was my birthday, July 5th or something like that. And I just looked at everybody, you know, and everything was running smooth. And it was the first time where I, when I popped, like I popped up and I didn't have to do really anything, but just be there. Like, it was just kind of weird. Cause like our volunteers was doing everything. And I was like, low key, like, dang, like, what can I do? You know what I'm saying? So like when the program start running by itself, that's why I was like, the only thing that's left for me to do is what I was, what I love to do, which is making sure everybody's well, making sure everybody's, you know, hydrating and eating and the, the shelterless people feel at home and things like that. When I realized that I can literally just do my job now, that was definitely a level up moment. This year, People's Breakfast Oakland is going to turn five years old. 
And since that first program in 2017, we served more than 50,000 meals throughout Oakland. We worked with hundreds of volunteers, so many local restaurants and donors, and they made it all possible. But we want to be clear. Me and Abbas, we didn't come up with this idea. We were just continuing what the Black Panther started. All the mistakes we made, and we made a lot. We would have made a lot more if we didn't have that blueprint laid down by the Panthers. A thousand percent. And so, we want to give the last word to one of the original Panthers, the co-founder of the Black Panther Party, Huey Newton. The party uh, is uh, at this time engaged in a struggle of gaining uh, representation and in the uh, uh, institutions in our community. And uh, according to our 10-point program, this was always our fight. Uh, we've been uh, misrepresented by the press uh, for a long time, but uh, the truth always finds its way out. And uh, I think that uh, history will justify our uh, past actions, and uh, certainly uh, history condemns uh, things and people uh, by eliminating them. The party is uh, still very much alive and kicking, and I think we must have done something right. On the next episode of Tales of the Town. I grab a door and say, why are you in class now? Don't you know that we're striking today? And we're striking for the rights of all of the students at Merritt College, especially the black ones. That's next week on Tales of the Town. Tales of the Town is hosted and executive produced by me, Delincey Parham, and Abbas Muntakeen. Our senior producer is Maya Cueva. Fact-checking is done by Bashir Mack and Daniel Suleiman. Mixing and sound design is done by Patma City Miller and Lauren Newsom. The theme song was produced by Cheyenne G and Carrie Lynn. The music from the Tales of the Town album that we featured on this episode is from Elu J and Jane Hancock. Thank you to Billy X, Donna Merch, and AB. If you like this show, please be sure to subscribe and give us that five-star review and tell all your friends about the show. To learn more about People's Programs and to support our organization, visit peoplesprograms.com. First, they went to their... Why does it all sound the same? Okay. First, they went to their elected representatives. All right, we're moving on.